morning, everyone. If you're visiting St. George's, I'm R.D. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to open God's Word this morning. So let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit here this morning. That Holy Spirit that convicts us and shows us who we truly are. Strips back the layers of self-deception, showing us that we are sinners. That same Holy Spirit that glorifies and magnifies the name of the Son as our only hope and Savior. The Son who glorifies the Father by doing his will and losing none of those that have been given to him. Lord, I pray that during this time now, as we look at this moment in the life of David, the passing of Saul and Jonathan, that we would be conformed ever more into the image of the Son. We pray this to the glory of his name. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles if you haven't already to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, that's going to be our passage this morning. And also keep your finger sort of one page behind in 1 Samuel chapter 31 because we're going to begin there. Um, as we do, I just want to set out what we're going to look at this morning. The first thing that we're going to look at is Saul's legacy okay, and some of the implications for us. And the second thing that we're going to look at is where we see Jesus in this account. Well, the first, Saul's legacy. I've been uniquely thinking about legacy over this past week. Some of you may know that my birthday was this past week. I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday. Anyway, one day this week. Uh, 47 is not a particularly notable or auspicious birthday. It's just one of those days where you're like, oh yeah. And so I was talking to my son, Matthew, and he asked me, he said, um, he said so what's it like being a year older? And I said, well, you know, I survived another year. And he looked at me and he's like, really? That's the best you have? Like you survived another year? And so it got me thinking, and I was thinking about this. It's uh, something that I think is unique to English-speaking people. When we record our age, first of all, in English, we say, I am 47. Did you know that in other languages you wouldn't say that? Do you know what you'd say? I have 47. Think about French, j'ai, or in, uh, in German, right? Ich habe, not ich bin. This, this is unique to English-speaking experience that we like define ourselves by our age. It's also unique to us that we define ourselves by our age retrospectively. So when we report our age, we talk about how many years we have completed, not how many years we're in. So as of October 14th of this past week, I did celebrate my 47th trip around the sun, but I also began my 48th. And what a different thing it would be if we conceived of it in that way. So instead of reporting our age by how many years we have now under our belt, you know, this whole idea of looking back, what if instead we said, I am in my 48th year and I praise God for that because my eyes are fixed on the horizon and fixed on eternity. Just a different way of thinking about it, right? And so I got thinking about this, and maybe I think about things differently than most, but that's what I was thinking. And I was thinking, um, you know, I think sometimes we spend too much of our time looking into the past of our own lives. We spend far too much time thinking about our 
past and our legacy and not enough time with our eyes on the future and on eternity. Well, that's something that I think we can glean from Saul's life at this moment of his and Jonathan's death. It's something for us today. You know, when you think about legacy, it's true that the only people that are actually going to remember you will be maybe three generations if you're lucky. Your children will know you and your name. Your grandchildren may know you. They'll likely know your name. But by the time you get to great-grandchildren, they might not even know your name. And so it's possible to orient your life in such a way that it makes too much of past and legacy, thinking that somehow your legacy in that sense is really going to matter when what we ought to do is have our eyes on the future and on eternity. So this is part of the problem with Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. And this was something that should have meant that his legacy was filled with promise and potential. And yet when you think about Saul today, how do you remember him? You remember him as a disaster. Well, how will you and I be remembered? See, this is where Saul lost his way and in the process lost everything. He took his eye off the future. He took his eye off um, eternity. He took his eye off faithfulness to the Lord and undertook the process of living his life from expediency, trying to make pragmatic decisions that would make for a good legacy, right? Trying to choose the better of options. He was focused and he was fixated on being the one who shaped his own legacy instead of looking to the future and looking to eternity. That's part of Saul's problem. I want, just as we launch into this passage this morning, to quickly recap some things from Saul's life. So if you have your Bible still open, turn one page over to 1 Samuel 31. This is the moment of Saul's death. If we look at Saul's life, we can do so from two different perspectives. Okay, the first one is to look at it from a divine perspective. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, the prophet reflects on the life of Saul this way from God's words. God says to the prophet Hosea, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. That's God's perspective on the life of Saul. We've come through the book of 1 Samuel and back in chapter 9, Saul arrives on the scene. And he arrives on the scene as the embodiment and the physical manifestation of Israel's rebellion and revolt against God's will. Do you remember that? Samuel, the prophet, the judge, stands before Israel and he says, why do you guys want a king? A king is only going to lead to disaster. They're going to take all of your wealth. They're going to send your sons to war. You already have a king. God is your king. But the people, Israel, rebelled against the Lord God and they said, we want to be like the other nations and so we want a king to rule over us. And so from a divine perspective, even the very existence of Saul as king is the embodiment of God's judgment against faithful Israel, faithless Israel. 
doomed from the start. Well, from a human perspective, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Saul appears before Samuel, it says that Saul was a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people, kind of like Brian. And yet, even from a human perspective, as we read through the life of Saul, by the time we get to chapter 13, Saul is already tried and found wanting. He offers an unlawful offering to God. Then in 1 Samuel 15, only two chapters later, he outright disobeys the Lord God. The Lord God commanded him that when you go in and slaughter the Amalekites, leave nothing, lay it all to waste. And Saul seeking legacy instead of obedience, looking to the present moment to try to shape his own story instead of trusting and obeying God, he decided to kill most of the Amalekites, but keep the best stuff for himself. He disobeyed. And so now when we get to chapter 31, it's the moment of Saul's recompense. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 31, and in verse 1, you see that the Israelite, their army, has fallen to the Philistines. In chapter 2, we're told that Saul's own sons have fallen as well. And you've got to think about that. That's more than just a tragically sad thing where his kids have died. It's also the end of his monarchy and dynasty. His own sons are dead. In verse 3, Saul is wounded by the archers. And then we're told that he's fearful that he would be captured alive, that he'd be taken into imprisonment, that he'd be mocked and tortured. And so in verse 4, he calls over his armor bearer and asks the armor bearer to kill him. In today's parlance, Saul was asking for military assisted in dying. <laughs> right? But the armor bearer refuses to carry it out. And so Saul impales himself on his own spear. Well, this was a fitting, tragic yet fitting end to the life of Saul. He had lived his entire life, his entire reign, as a terror to himself and to others. And he dies with neither fear of God nor hope in God on his own spear. Move ahead, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Namasha read it to us, and we're told that this Amalekite appears before David and tells him a story, the story of the demise of Saul. But you'll notice that the story that the Amalekite tells David doesn't align with the story that we've just read in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Did you notice that? It's a different story. And some critics of Scripture would come up to that and say, well, this is a case where uh, there's an inconsistency in Scripture. But this is not a case of scriptural inconsistency. Instead, what's happened is that this Amalekite is fabricating a tale. He's 
fabricating a story and telling a lie to try to garner favor with David, the heir apparent. This Amalekite is coming with the news of Saul's passing, and he's weaved himself into a place of prominence and importance in the account that he tells because he's hoping to be the first one to pay homage to the new king and so to get some elevated status. You've got to remember that for chapters now, Saul has been seeking to kill and destroy David. And so this Amalekite likely would have assumed that if he tells this ruse, if he tells David that he was the one who finished Saul off, and, and you know he comes to him, he says, I'm the one who actually finished him off. Here's the, the arm bracelet and here's the crown. He was thinking that David would receive that as good news. But in verses 11 to 16, we're told that the opposite happens. Instead of favor and honor and gratitude, this Amalekite received David's first death sentence. And in this moment, in one sense, David um, finishes off and completes what Saul failed to do, that is to eradicate the Amalekites, right? This sort of echoes from 1 Samuel 15. Saul fails to wipe out the Amalekites. There's, this Amalekite reappears, ironically, um, and David finishes him off. So that's what's happening in one sense. But in another sense, it's a weighty moment for all of us today. We read this account and we are confronted with a truth that we know. That in this life, you get away with nothing. The Amalekite claims to have killed the Lord's anointed, Saul. And so he rightly comes under the judgment of death. Each and every one of us, in some capacity or in some sense, find ourselves in the crowd in Pilate's court crying, crucify him, and have some culpability in the death of the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. And so we too deserve death. There's no way around it. It's our just reward. We need a savior. Okay, let's, let's go back to talking about legacy. So Saul, his legacy should have been as the first and mightiest conquering king of Israel. But his underlying values shaped his decisions in such a way that he was more concerned with the present moment and with the past. He was consumed with the approval of the crowds. He was driven by approval ratings, and it actually drove him mad. Saul spent his entire life acting as though he was his own savior, and he would determine how the history books would remember him in perpetuity. It was foundationally a problem because he put his eyes on the moment instead of on eternity. 
when all the Lord God wanted from him was mere faithfulness and obedience. And so in this process, where Saul loses himself, trying to cling to his own legacy, trying to shape his own future, he ends up losing both. He loses his legacy, and he loses his eternity. And you know, friend, this is the painful irony that we pull out as we reflect on the life and death of Saul. If you live your life for your own legacy, if you live everything trying to manipulate and control the present moment, you will end up losing both, like Saul. You'll become arrogant and selfish. You'll become insecure and you'll become conniving. You will become manipulating. You will become controlling. Your life will be driven by fearful insecurity. But if you keep eternity in focus, then everything in the present moment will fall into place and a legacy of godliness and faithfulness will follow. Do you see how that works? Let's make this practical for a moment. We see it in the life of Saul, but it's lived out day to day for us as well. You find yourself in moments where you're making decisions, large and small, and you're wondering, what should I do? Perhaps you even think about them in a big sense, and you think, how will this decision shape my legacy? And so you boil it down to either option A or option B. But then your next thought is, well, how do I even evaluate or assess these two options? What, what metric do I use to assess them? Pros and cons? Okay, well, maybe that's one. But how are those pros and cons defined, right? What defines a pro? What defines a con? What do you do? Well, sometimes you know that the very best decisions come through the greatest hardship or with the greatest short-term price tag. If you look too closely at any particular decision without any horizon of time, decisions that are the right ones will often seem to be the hard ones, the unpopular ones. The decisions that will require discipline and faith and maybe even an emotional price tag. But you probably know from experience and more importantly from scripture that it's often the hardest choices that are the best. So what do you do? How do you figure out option A or option B? Well, we learn from Saul's mistakes. You don't boil it down to pragmatics. You don't boil it down to trying to shape and form your own legacy. Instead, Christians ought to always make the decision that faithfulness demands. Look, this is something we have to remind ourselves of all the time as Christian men and women. We are not finally pragmatists. We don't always make decisions based on the expediency of them or, you know, the best possible outcome. Sometimes you can look at options A and B, list out pros and cons, 
But faithfulness will demand that you make the opposite to what appears to be the rational choice. Why you see that throughout Scripture. Sometimes God calls his people to pare down their armies before going into battle so that his name will be glorified. Not a matter of expediency, but a matter of mere faithful obedience. And so we look at Saul at the end of his life, at this moment of his demise, and he's lost everything. Because Saul is a clinging, grabbing, manipulative, fearful, insecure pragmatist. He lived his entire life, made all of his decisions based on his own cleverness, his own cunning, and so he lost his legacy and he lost eternity. Lost them both. Friends, what are people going to say about you when you're gone? Well, if you're a Christian man or woman, your hope is that people will say his was a life marked by determined, unwavering, faithful trust in God. That's what you hope. You'll hope that in some way your life demonstrated an imperfect trust that would only make sense if God was faithful. Let me say it a different way. As a Christian man or woman, you would hope that at the end of your life, people would look at you and say, the only way that the decisions that he or she made ever make sense is if there is a God and if he is good. That's what a life of faithful trust would look like. And so we as Christians, we aim our lives at eternity. We aim our lives towards faithfulness. But we only do so in response to God's faithfulness to us in Jesus. It's the only way it's possible. We have faith that is granted to us by the faithfulness of Jesus. See, Saul, he should have at every point trusted in God because God is faithful. You and I pause at the end of Saul's life and we learn. We learn that a life that is calculating grasping, pros and cons, expediency weighing, results in the loss of everything. But a life that is anchored in eternity, a life that is merely and simply trusting and obedient, gains everything. Because it's living out of God's faithfulness to you in Jesus. You trust him. You may be thinking about that and thinking about your own life and say, well, if mere faithfulness and obedience is the goal, it's what I ought to aim towards, that seems really hard. And perhaps in one sense it is. But I want to suggest to you that in, in another sense it's actually much easier. Because as a person with your eye on eternity, as a person whose life is shaped by trusting in God, 
you can skip and, and, and take all the pressure off all the questions of expediency. They still exist. It's still good practice to say, well, which one is better of the options before me? But ultimately, all you have to consider is, what does the Lord God want from me? That's it. And so in one sense, it may be harder because you say, i got to be faithful, got to aim towards faithfulness. But in another sense, it's so much easier because it sets you free from all of those other calculations. What does God want from me? And so as Christian men and women, we can just rest in the faithfulness of God to us. We can rest in the truth that we have eternity secured in him. Here's our first point. Saul's death cautions us that we ought to always keep eternity out ahead of legacy. Keep our eyes on faithfulness. Rest in Christ. The second thing I want you to see is actually from verses 17 to 27. And that is how David foreshadows Jesus. So David receives news of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And he not only does not triumph in that news, but he even goes on and composes a poem about it, right? A poem that honors the memory of the very guy who sought to kill him. Isn't that odd? Would you do the same? I have to confess that there are times in my life where I enjoy a certain degree of schadenfreude. You know what schadenfreude is? It's one of those rich German words that means to derive pleasure from other people's suffering. No, okay, you're thinking, oh, R.D., you're such a terrible guy, but you do it too. Especially in two cases. First of all, you probably do it by following meme accounts of people falling and banging their head. But secondly, you also do it when you have an enemy and then they get their comeuppance. There's part of you that enjoys that, isn't there? Well, certainly that's what you would have expected from David. And yet, when David hears about the fall and the death of his mortal enemy Saul, he writes of his respect for Saul and his tender affection for Jonathan. Well, he writes, and if you read verses 17 to 27, you see that nothing good can be said about Saul's devotion to the Lord God, so David doesn't say anything at all. Right? You don't have anything good to say. You don't say anything at all. In verses 19, 25, and 27, he has this repeated refrain, how the mighty have fallen. And it's a sad and tragic indictment that he's saying. Look at verse 23. Saul, beloved. Jonathan, lovely. When David hears of the death of Saul and Jonathan, he doesn't celebrate. He reflects and and, and he shows this complexity. Maybe you've experienced this. When someone dies and your relationship with them has not been awesome. But it's complicated. That's what David is experiencing in this moment. And, and he reminds us that 
You don't have to like someone to love them. David doesn't like Saul, but he loves him. And after his death, he's grieving with the complexity of feelings when he's forced to mourn the loss of someone that he loved, but someone who tried to kill him. And so he says of Saul, he's beloved. Jonathan, he says, oh, he's lovely. Well, there's a whole sermon there that we could do on the importance of male friendships. He says, Jonathan, you're more lovely to me than women. And there's nothing homoerotic about that. He's saying, the love that I have for this friend of mine surpasses even the great love that I have for women. It's just a deep friendship. Man, you need that. So where is Jesus in this? Well, the first thing is that yet again, like we did last week, we see David returning good for evil. And friends, I want to, I want to remind you of this. You and I are never more like David. We are never more like the greater David, Jesus Christ, than when we return good for evil. And the second way that we see Jesus in this is to continue along the allegorical theme. Okay. In David, we catch glimpses of Jesus. Jesus foreshadowed. And in Saul, we catch glimpses of ourselves. Saul dies, and David doesn't rejoice. And there it is. In this moment, we catch a glimpse of the heart of God. David doesn't rejoice at Saul's death. And God does not rejoice at the death of a sinner. But rather, God would have him turn from his wickedness and live. See, this is a common misconception that many of us carry about God. Sometimes it's one that's spoken, or sometimes it's one that's unspoken. It's this lie that God is somehow out to get you. God is seeking to destroy you, and when he's seeking to destroy you, he's trying to trip you up, he's trying to make you fall. And God somehow in this lie that we conceive ourselves, when we do fall or fail, he somehow sits back and laughs, right? Ha ha, I knew I could catch him. Somehow we conceive of a God who is capricious and ill-tempered and set against us. Well, first we have to acknowledge that unrepentant sinners do die. So as we're drilling into this passage, we have to, we have to be clear. Saul is destroyed. This means that death awaits everyone who has rejected God's saving grace in Jesus. Eventually, everyone who determinately rejects the grace of God in Jesus will get what they deserve, death and destruction. Why we shudder at the thought. But 
but we also see in this passage. A truth that we also hear in 2 Peter chapter 3. That God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's, let's look at this passage again through this lens. Saul has died in his determined sin, but David finds no pleasure in it. And so David here shows us Jesus. He shows us God's own heart. Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, you and me. David takes no joy in Saul's demise. God in Jesus takes no pleasure in those who perish. And so God has moved heaven and earth to save you. Well, you might hear this this morning and think, like Saul, I know that I deserve death. Like Saul, I know that my faithless life deserves neither legacy nor eternity. Friend, in this moment, look at David in this passage and see Jesus. Behold Jesus on the cross, saving his people and granting them eternal life. All of those people whom God set his affection on from before the foundation of the world. All of those who are blood-bought, redeemed by the blood of the Son. Their sins washed out 2,000 years ago. All of those who have been granted the faith to believe and to repent and to receive that grace for themselves. So you sit here this morning saying, although I see myself in Saul, I hope that I've been saved in David, in Christ. You ask, well, how do I know if I'm one of those who's saved? Well, here's the question. First, do you know yourself to be a sinner? When you read accounts like this, do you see glimpses of yourself in Saul? And the second question, do you look to Jesus as your Savior? When you read passages like this, do you see how David doesn't rejoice in the death of Saul and see your Savior? Well, maybe you say, well, sure, R.D., at sometimes, right, at my best moments, my moments of, of heroic faith, I definitely see that, but I have doubts. Sometimes my faith is strong and I trust. Sometimes my faith is weak, I have doubts. I even question if it's all true. In Isaiah 43, we're told this of God, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. That sounds like a God who is for you and not against you. It means that even if you have the slightest flicker of faith, 
even if your faith is like a reed that has been beaten and bruised and is, and is showing stress fractures and about to crack, God doesn't rejoice in the death of sinner. He doesn't come along to you in your moments of weakness and say, yeah, you didn't make the grade, you didn't make the cut, break you off, bought you out. It means that if you're sitting here this morning and you have even the slightest flicker of faith, why that's evidence that God has saved you in Jesus. You belong to him. He's for you and not against you. He doesn't seek or celebrate your demise. See, David shows us Jesus because David should have been glad at the death of Saul. But instead... He puts this truth on display that God does not rejoice in the death of a sinner. He's not wishing that any should perish, not even you, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, maybe this morning you're sitting here and like Saul, you look at your life you say, I see those same patterns of faithlessness. I try, to, I try to make my own way through life. I try to create my own legacy. I don't live a life that's shaped by trust in God. Friend, Saul was determined and saw that through to the end without repenting. But if you're here this morning and you have a heartbeat, if you have a breath, it's because God has granted that to you so that you might repent and return to him and trust in Jesus as your savior and not get what you deserve. For God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the God who is for you, not against you. Turn to him. And you'll find life. Keep your eye on the eternity that he has secured for you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we see far too much of ourselves in Saul. pragmatically trying to figure things out rather than trusting you and keeping that as the only metric for our lives and for our decisions. God, I pray that you would grant us such a robust and enormous trust in you that our very lives would show forth that you are trustworthy. Lord, I pray that we would not make the mistake of Saul and see faithlessness through to its final conclusion, but that each of us would repent and trust in your goodness and that you are for us and not against us in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.